11 months into the year with holidays on the horizon now as pumpkins give way to all manner of other decorations. For many, the pending merriment provokes a sense of anxiety. That's as good a time as any to mark National Stress Awareness Day. That's for this November 1st. Perhaps this edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement will prepare you for the time ahead. I'm Sean Tubbs, and probably not. On today's program, the final campaign finance reports are published, showing another high level of activity in the at-large Albemarle School Board race. Turnout in early voting in Charlottesville is well below the state average in Virginia. Charlottesville has solicited information from developers who would like to partner to build affordable housing. There are several vacancies on Charlottesville boards, including four seats on the Human Rights Commission. And the Charlottesville City Council gets a brief lesson on recent population trends and forecasts from the Weldon Cooper Center at the University of Virginia. In today's first subscriber-fueled shout-out, there's a sudden dip in temperatures, but that does not mean you have to stop growing some of your late-fall vegetables. At 2 p.m. on Saturday, November 18th, the Piedmont Master Gardeners and the Virginia Cooperative Extension will present Season Extenders in the Edible Garden, a free garden basics class on how to use crop choice, garden layout, and row covers to grow fresh produce into the winter. The class will take place at Trinity Episcopal Church at 1118 Preston Avenue in Charlottesville and will include a hands-on demonstration of how to position and secure row covers. Register at piedmontmastergardeners.org. The polls close on the 2023 elections in less than six days, and the final set of campaign finance reports have been filed before ballots will be counted. Thanks to the Virginia Public Access Project for doing the heavy lifting on getting these ready for the public. Before we get to the campaign finance reports, however, turnout appears to be lower than in the last General Assembly election in 2021. In Albemarle, 9,441 people have voted as of October 31st, and that is at a rate of 111.7 voters per 1,000 registered voters. That's a higher figure than the rest of Virginia, where the turnout rate in early voting is 96 per 1,000 registered voters. Turnout is down sharply in Charlottesville compared to the rest of the state, with 73.5 ballots cast per 1,000 registered voters. That's 2,482 votes as of yesterday. There are no contested local races in Charlottesville. There are two supervisor races in Fluvanna, and both are contested, and the early voting rate there is 121.6 ballots cast per 1,000 registered voters. More on those races tomorrow. Louisa County has three supervisor seats on the ballot, and the rate there is 102.4 ballots cast per 1,000 registered voters. Greene County also has three supervisor races, and the figure there is 104.1 per 1,000 registered voters. Two supervisor races are up for election in Nelson County, and the early voting there is measured at 115.4 ballots cast per 1,000 voters. The latest campaign finance reporting period covered October 1st through October 26th and is the last mandatory report before the election unless a candidate receives a large donation. In the Rivanna district race for supervisor, incumbent Democrat B. Lepisto-Kirtley faces independent challenger T.J. Fadley. 
Fadley raised $7,675 in the 26 days covered in the new period, with $5,000 coming from Richard and Diana Beyer and another $2,000 coming from the Albemarle County Republican Committee. The candidates spent $8,740, with much of that being in advertising, with $2,500 to Lee Enterprises, $2,586 to Monticello Media, and $2,533 to Charlottesville Radio Group. Another $742 went to Rob Schilling, a former Charlottesville City Councilor who is a radio host on WINA. In contrast, Lepisto Kirtley raised $1,100 and spent $4,232 with no local advertising buy. Incumbent Democrat Ann Malik faces independent Brad Rickle in the Whitehall District. Malik raised $27,649 in the period, including a $10,000 contribution from the Virginia Future PAC and a $5,000 contribution from author John Grisham. Malik's campaign spent $27,675 in the period, including $21,576 on the Blue Ridge Group for advertising, which includes advertising placement in local media. Rickle raised $2,015 in the period and spent $1,772, with $523 of that in social media posts brokered through Meta. Democrat Mike Pruitt is the lone candidate in the Scottsville district race to succeed outgoing Supervisor Donna Price. Pruitt raised $1,783 and spent $220. The most expensive race in Albemarle County history continues, as both candidates for the at-large school board seat had another active period. Prior to October, the campaigns of both Meg Bryce and Allison Spillman had both crossed the $100,000 mark. On October 1st, the Spillman campaign had $43,813 in the bank and raised $56,387 in cash and collected another $22,536 in in-kind donations. Sonia Smith contributed $40,000 in the period, with John Grisham giving another $5,000. Prior to this period, Smith had given another $30,000 to the campaign. An entity called Albemarle Parents Promoting Learning, Incorporated contributed $21,750 in in-kind donations. The report filed with the Virginia Department of Education lists this as covering the actual cost of direct mail. The campaign spent a total of $86,040, including $57,500 to LC Media for media. Another $21,675 went to Patel & Company for direct mail services. Spillman had $14,160 on hand on October 26th. Bryce began the month with $51,319 and raised an additional $16,226 in cash and $2,493 in in-kind donation. The cash includes $5,000 from Peter Taylor. The campaign spent $32,852 in the partial month, with $20,000 going to LifeView Marketing, a creator and purchaser of television ads. Another $8,468 went to the firm Creative Direct, a direct mail vendor that specializes in Republican campaigns. The campaign had $34,692 on hand at the close of October 26th. 
There's not nearly as much funding in the race for the Whitehall seat on the school board, where appointed incumbent Rebecca Berlin faces challenger Joanne McDermott. McDermott's campaign began the month with $1,199, raised $2,324, and spent $996. Berlin had $6,961 in the bank on October 1st, raised $775, and spent $7,556, with $7,012 of that going to the Democratic Party state of Virginia. There was $159 in the campaign coffer on October 26th. In the Rivanna district, incumbent Judy Lee is the only candidate on the ballot, but there is a write-in challenger in Michelle de Stefano. The de Stefano campaign began the month with $780 and raised $2,375. That includes $2,000 from the Albemarle County Republican Committee. The campaign spent $777, with all but $1 of that, going to the Charlottesville Radio Group. There was $2,377 left over. Lee began the month with $933, raised $200, spent $367, and had $765 in the account as of October 26th. Like her counterpart in the supervisor race, Scottsville School Board member Ellen Osborne has no coordinated opposition. Osborne did not raise any money, spent $270, and had $546 left in the bank. Charlottesville's capital budget for the current fiscal year includes $3 million for public housing redevelopment and just over $3 million for the Piedmont Housing Alliance for two projects on Park Street. Both PHA and the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority are slated to receive millions more over the next four years. But the city of Charlottesville today has posted another request for information to solicit other potential providers for the category known as the Housing Development Partnership Capital Investment Project. Here's a section from a press release that was sent out this morning. We invite housing developers and housing providers to provide comprehensive visions into potential projects that align with our city's robust affordable housing and community development goals from fiscal year 2024-25 to fiscal year 29-2030. Unlike other applications for the city's growing pool of housing funds, this is just looking for new ideas. The last such request helped direct $33.4 million in funds that will be spent through fiscal year 2028, according to the release. Under Virginia law, elected bodies cannot guarantee spending beyond the current fiscal year. There is no set amount of funding included with the notice, but the window for applications to be considered closes on December 15th. The CRHA has already signaled it wants $15 million to help prepare for the development of West Haven. Who else is out there who would like to build some affordable housing? We'll see. Charlottesville City Council agreed to fund two new positions this year in the Office of Human Rights, with $101,233 set aside for an investigator and $79,845 for someone to do administrative support.
That makes for a total of four full-time equivalents to an entity that reports to the city manager's office. The budget assigned to the Human Rights Commission has grown from $184,470 in fiscal year 2020 to $487,553 in the current fiscal year. With that in mind, there are currently four vacancies on the Human Rights Commission, and the city is looking for people to apply. According to a press release sent out earlier this week, the primary purpose of the HRC is to make recommendations to council. Here's a section from that release. The HRC used its public platform to host discussions on topics ranging from state-level legislation affecting housing affordability to the recent proposed expansion of emergency shelter for people experiencing homelessness. Following the appointment of new commissioners this December, the HRC will meet to develop its priorities for the next year. Would-be applicants have until December 8th to apply. There's a link in the newsletter to the application. There are also vacancies for the following groups. There are four positions on the Board of Architectural Review, with each reserved to represent a specific constituency. Three full-time members and one alternate are desired for the Board of Zoning Appeals. Three members of the Charlottesville Affordable Housing Fund Committee, all of whom must be beneficiaries of affordable housing funding, as well as an at-large resident. So a total of four. There are three vacancies on the Charlottesville Historic Resources Committee, there's one vacancy on the planning commission that has been unfilled since a resignation in June. Council has had applicants, but has not been satisfied with them. Maybe it's you. Are you going to apply? You could be on the planning commission. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second subscriber-supported shout-out, the organization Community Bikes has announced it has surpassed its goal of distributing bicycles for both kids and adults. They want to express their heartfelt thanks to those who have kept bike donations rolling through their doors. They also want to express endless gratitude to the staff and volunteers who lovingly restore donated bikes, ensuring they are safe for their new owners. To find out more and learn about the recent donation of a new van donated by GEICO, visit communitybikes.org. But here are some of those numbers. 1,611 bikes donated and saved from the landfill. 1,219 volunteer hours. 1,002 free bikes for kids distributed. 263 bikes sold to support their programs, 292 free teen and adult bikes distributed, and 158 free bike repairs in 11 mobile clinics. That's communitybikes.org so you can learn more. But now we're back with Charlottesville Community Engagement. The Charlottesville City Council is holding a series of work sessions leading up to their December 5th public hearing on the development code. On October 11th, the four elected members and the one appointed got an update on population trends for Charlottesville and surrounding areas. Hamilton Lombard of the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service chronologically began his presentation around 1963 which is the last major time in which Charlottesville took control over land that had been in Albemarle County. 
The city's population in the 1960 U.S. Census was $29,427, an increase to $38,880 in 1970, mostly because of the acquired territory. If we look at the population of Charlottesville over the last few decades, we had a very stable population in the city really beginning when the annexation stopped. We had some infill. At the same time, we had a lot of families leaving the city. The newer developments are out in the suburbs. The population remained flat for the next 20 years, with a 1980 count of 39,916, a 1990 count of 40,314, and a 2,000 count of 40,009. Then we had the rezoning 20 years ago, which upzoned some areas around UVA, particularly West Main Street, and that's when the growth resumed. Lombard said that led to further growth with a 2010 census count of 43,475 and a 2020 figure of 46,553. However, that one comes with a big asterisk. We had the 2020 census, which was conducted April 1st of 2020. It turned out to be about the worst time you could have because you had the pandemic before New Year's closed. The census counted about 46,000 people in the city. Um, my office produced its own estimate of the city's population that goes into state funding formulas. And that was the city's population was probably a little over 50,000 instead. Lombard's office predicts several more thousand will call Charlottesville home in the years to come. The Weldon Cooper Center projects a population of around 53,000 by 2030, if their assumptions are correct. Councillor Leah Perrier asked if council's upcoming vote on the new zoning ordinance will affect the rate of growth. We perceive that the growth will happen with or without a zoning change, or do you perceive that because of a potential zoning change that will be the driver of the increase in population. Lombard said the Weldon Cooper Center uses the same methodology across the Commonwealth and doesn't model their numbers based on land use decisions. A major factor in their calculation is the age of the current population. What we're looking at is the past growth trends and really looking at the age distribution. Charleston's relatively young. That means it has more births, fewer deaths. And that drives long growth really regardless of some of these other factors. You can't look at just one locality in isolation. Lombard said that in times when Charlottesville is not growing, surrounding counties tend to pick up more of the population growth. Armagh County's population doubled from 1970 to 2000. Blue Van and Green tripled from that spillover growth going out of Charlottesville into the rest of the area. The UVA student population plays a big role in the city's demographics, as demonstrated in the 2020 census undercount. Lombard said enrollment increased by 5,000 people or so since 2000, with half of that increase living in the city of Charlottesville. However, he said the region's growth is more affected by being relatively close to a bigger place. Overall, when we look at Charleston's growth compared to the rest of Virginia, look how it interacts. A lot of it, I think, is being driven by its proximity to Northern Virginia. There's about a quarter million people who move out of D.C. year v. year. Lombard said that could be remote workers who are seeking a more affordable place to live that's close enough to travel to the office when needed. Which raised a question. If the city upzones, will that create in itself another population boom? And for whom? Here's James Fries, the city's director of Neighborhood Development Services. If you build it, they will come. Well, it's more complex than that. And I, I think you would agree with this. 
because they're going to come anyway yeah, exactly. and displace the people who are already here. That's right. Right. And here's City Councilor Brian Pinkston. It's not because they've got so much wealth. They've got a billion dollar house that they yeah. can sell yeah. and come in here and displace some, some yeah. somebody else. So Fries said building more places to live decreases the likelihood of displacement. Vice Mayor Juan Diego Wade said that only a few entities will be willing to build the deeply affordable housing that's recommended in the affordable housing plan. I'm just trying to put all of this together, like, because I know we need a lot of different housing type, but the majority of the zoning, upzoning, you know, because it's not a lot of money into deeply affordable housing, they're not going to, they're, they're going to build the, the half million dollar home so that, you know, so the people from Northern Virginia can get a, a discount. Pinkston said the goal of the medium-intensity residential designation in the future land use map is to create what's called the missing middle. I mean, the missing middle is not for the million-dollar homes, it's for, hopefully, for people like my kids. Fries said the city is hoping for a wider range of options, but that the market relies on what it can bear in rent or sales in order to justify new construction without subsidization. New construction is always going to be at the upper end of the market, right? That's just a fact. It's, mm-hmm. That's how new construction works. But in the face of population growth, the more options we create, the new construction is going to draw in the highest value. The existing construction then becomes available rather than that getting drawn into <clears throat> the high-end market. Fries likened this to a game of musical chairs, server name. Mayor Lloyd Snook pointed out that other communities have set a target date in their comprehensive plans, but the Seville Plans Together initiative did not. For instance, Albemarle County is planning for a 20-year horizon in the AC44 process. At some point, and maybe this is that point, we need to decide what we're planning for. Snook said knowing what the population might be is helpful, but said that that number is only an output. Pinkston had this guesstimate for the future. I would personally say 75,000 people in the year 2015, based off these rates. Wade said he could see those numbers coming into fruition, but per year was not so sure. I think that's a little higher, don't you? Per year questioned whether is enough space to build room for that many people, even with the additional building space that will be allowed in the future after the development code is adopted. The idea of the zoning map is to give as much flexibility to get as high as possible. And I, don't, say, I don't disagree, but I'm just saying at a certain point, you've run out of land. Even if everything you build from now until eternity is 15 stories, there's only yeah, so much space. The conversation continued, as it always does, because I didn't get to the end. There's a work session tonight on the anti-displacement overlays that are now in the draft code at the request of the Housing Advisory Committee. I will continue to try to catch up with everything that I still have not reported on. I'm going to get there, and that's the end of this one, though. again at the end of another edition of a newsletter that in a perfect world might be a 24-hour news service. 
but we live in the world where the 24-hour news services generally talk about one topic per hour. If this newsletter were to focus on what topic, what would you prefer? Transportation? Land use? Economic development? The career of Zsa Zsa Gabor? I'd argue that all of those issues are central to the main goal of Charlottesville community engagement, except for maybe Zsa Zsa, which every single day might have a slightly different focus based on how the stories come together. And as these editions keep getting made, more people are going to begin to work on them. This edition was reviewed by a copy editor, a copy editor I'm paying. I'm able to do that because more of you keep subscribing and about a fifth of you are paying. If you want to contribute, today's a great day. If you pay $5 a month through Substack, $50 a year through Substack, $200 a year through Substack, ting, 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 will match your initial payment. Thank you, Ting. Let's get on with the show. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.